0: In 2018, the Wealth Standard podcast broke down the year into three seasons, each focusing on a principle from the inspired works of philosopher John Locke, specifically his philosophy on life, liberty, and property. In 2019, we progressed from principle to the ideal environment for building wealth and achieving prosperity. The theme was laissez-faire capitalism, For season two, it continues. The theme is entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship and how you apply the principles and environment to the individual. The guests ranging from economists to entrepreneurs to political influencers, authors, and more will teach you how to take your life to the next level. Now, on to the next episode. Hi, everyone. This is Patrick. Thank you so much for tuning into yet another episode on entrepreneurship, which is our theme this season. And we are extending it, as you probably guessed, if you've been listening for a while. We usually work in four-month themes, and now we're into our actual fifth month in entrepreneurship. I believe that the guests that I had really wanted on in the summer where they weren't able to show I still believe their message was vital. And so we're going to extend it into October, then conclude our year with two months of another theme. Today's topic may not seem that it has anything to do with the entrepreneur. So I'll state that from the beginning, but I believe it has everything to do with it. So my guest, Eric, he is in the, as you can imagine, based on the title of his book, the political arena. This arena, I believe, is for the most part psychological as it pertains to what we hear and what is represented. And I believe that is a skill of the entrepreneur to understand what is hyperbole and what is actually real and applicable. And It takes some discipline when it comes to understanding yourself, how you're wired, how you've been influenced in the past, and also the person that is communicating with you and what they are influenced by, why they are speaking to you. I believe psychology and influence is being used all around us without really being that known, being that conspicuous. There's a documentary I saw recently called, what's it called? The Great Hack. And the documentary was fascinating because it talked about the history of how a group that I won't uh, name the name here, go listen, watch the documentary, it's on Netflix, but a group that used big data as well as artificial intelligence to very strategic in the way that they marketed during the Trump campaign and previous to the Trump campaign, Brexit and some other elections. These days, I know we've heard big data. I know we've heard about privacy and we've heard whether it's the Facebook inquisition and so forth. Our information's everywhere and it's being used for a strategic advantage of whether it's marketing and companies or in this case, the political environment. So being aware of that, I think is very important, but also it's the psychology associated with your understanding of yourself, your perspective, where it stands and then being open to others' perspectives, then weighing everything and then coming up with a decision. This is crucial. I believe in times of crisis and times of chaos, there is a lot of opportunity, yet there's only a small percentage that actually capitalized on that opportunity. And I would argue that that percentage understands themselves so well that they aren't necessarily influenced by the emotional side of things, the rhetoric. They're able to understand that and hear what's being said, but not necessarily come to a conclusion. So Eric and I had a great discussion and I'm going to end my introduction of him with a quote that I found. It says, The problem with the world is that the intelligent people are full of doubts while the stupid ones are full of confidence. Very interesting. Okay, guys, thanks again for all the support. If you like what you hear, go check out the previous podcast. Give us an awesome review on iTunes. I'd be so grateful if you did. So thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Now to my interview with Eric Fogg. Hey everyone, Patrick here. Listen, most of you know that I wrote a book last year called Heads I Win, Tails You Lose, a Financial Strategy to Reignite the American Dream. And the book has has sold tens of thousands of copies. We're really excited about it. So for those of you who are new listening and haven't had your chance to pick one up, you guys can actually get it for free. So if you head over to thewealthstandard.com forward slash book, then all you have to do is pay for shipping and you will get your... copy for free so head over to thewealthstandard.com forward slash book thanks for the support okay my guest today is eric fogg and i'm really really excited we just had a brief conversation and it's maybe even more excited so eric thank you so much for spending the time today with me and i can't wait for our my audience to listen to you and hear what you have to say patrick it's absolutely my pleasure i've been looking forward to this one for a while So, you know, Eric, I think the first thing that would help listeners is if you were to maybe describe or characterize the message of your blog, the book that you came out with about four years ago, and what were you trying to achieve? What did you want your audience to walk away with as an understanding or a new view to the world? Sure. I'm actually really glad that you pointed out that it came out four years ago because I
1: have a little bit of kind of political hipster cred now in that I was really concerned about political polarization before it was cool, before 2016. And I think one of the reasons it's so important that I was able to get it out before that was that it reinforces the fact that we were able to do this analysis in the book about political polarization in the United States before Donald Trump was elected, before we saw this kind of schism play out in American electorate. Being able to do that analysis beforehand shows that this has been coming, right? That Donald Trump's election and the polarization around it is a result of an ongoing process as opposed to the cause itself. So what we explore in Wedged is what are the forces and incentives in the United States political election system and media around politics that drive us towards choosing these tribal sides and treating politics like war, rather than treating it like a discussion. So the big thesis in Wedged is that most Americans have nuanced, contradictory, not always necessarily moderate, but often mixed views about how they feel about issues. And many Americans have very moderate views. Not all do, and that's okay, but that, that is not reflected in Congress, and it's not reflected in the national conversation. And we can talk about as much of the theory behind this as we want. But that's the big insight, is that there's this gap between reality and what is projected into the national conversation.
0: So where do you feel this realities come from? Because it's so widespread. And I've thought about this before as how a big group of people come to a way of doing things that's similar. You know, I associate it. My kids right now are in school. And I look at the school system and the Herman, what's his name? The guy that brought- Herman Cain? not Herman Cain. It was way back, gosh, the 1890s. I think it was Horace Mann. Horace Mann. Oh, yeah. It brought this whole kind of Prussian idea of the school system where it was going to a more regimented, dictatorial, hierarchical structure in which teachers are placed in this very elite role and essentially teach people. The whole theory is that to train workers, to train military people, right? To be told what to do. And, and you look at just wow, like going through elementary school and then junior middle school and then high school and then even college. It's like, it's the repetition over and over and over and over again of being told what to do, told what to think. You have to do this in order to succeed. And it's like, it's interesting how that plays into our ability to look at what you just described as reality. And that's what most people's reality is. At the same time, it also helps us understand like why we're in the situation we're in as, you know, in the political uh, scheme of things. Absolutely. We don't bring up the US education system
1: in the book in particular because it's one of the constants throughout this change period that we're talking about. And the period we're talking about is starts in the early 1990s, where we start to see this weird divide happen. A good example is in as regards abortion, the actual policy ideas that Americans have have actually been the mix of policy ideas that Americans have has been constant since the 1990s, but there used to be much more of a combined identity around kind of what my position was in abortion. Most people were pro-choice, but even though people want the same policies, there's been this bifurcation of pro-choice to pro-life, and it's about 50-50 now. Even though everyone thinks the same thing, they just identify differently now. So it's over that time period that we're explaining what is the thing that changed. Your point about education is really interesting because of how it preps the human mind to respond to what it's seeing in the media. So yes, what is the thing that changed What's driving this split between narrative and reality? And what we believe, what we hypothesize in the book is that changes in how media is consumed are the primary driver. So if we think about how the brain is prepped, and then we think about how media has changed, no longer do we consume media in these long forms of newspapers. We consume media, both television media, internet media, through very small chunks that activate a very different part of the brain. They activate this very instinctual, immediate responsive part of the brain, which is a totally different literal region of the brain than is activated during reading a newspaper. That part of the brain is very responsive to emotion. It's very responsive to anger, to fear, to frustration. And if we think of, just for an example, the incentive of an online newspaper, what they need to do is get you to click. They need to get you in for a few seconds so you see the ad and you ship out. So in this shorter attention span mechanism, the tools that are being used to drive revenue for a newspaper are the tools that get you to click, which are the ones that activate that smaller instinctual part of the brain. And so how do they make money? They make you angry. They make you scared. And that is the process. That's the mechanism. It's not necessarily anyone's fault. There's no bad guy. It's just incentives that have led to how we change, how our emotional relationship with politics has changed.
0: Well, politics has become much more about the psychological narrative than anything else. And it's clear to those who understand what we're talking about, where there are triggers, they get some chemicals in our brain and things to fire, and they don't allow for rational, critical thinking. And this is, you know, Donald Trump is the the epitome of this because of what he says. I don't think he cares as much about what he says as the reaction he wants. And he knows the reaction he's going to get. And it's fascinating. And people still, I would say, buy into it. But you look at all the information that exists today, whether it's the internet, social media, there's so much. And I say our mind is kind of like defending ourselves from taking anything else in. And that's where I think we are so influenced way more than we think, whether it's by the artificial intelligence that tells companies where they should place ads, how the color scheme should look, what time of day they should be posting, the different ages and sexes and socioeconomic situations. I mean, there's so much data out there right now that there's like strategic influence every minute of the day, it seems like. And most people are ignorant, naive to that. And that's what I would say is, is scary, but also good that you know, you're blogging, you're talking about this because a huge election coming up in 2016 or 2020 And based on you writing this book four years ago and how things have just evolved and compounded, I mean, I can't imagine what the rhetoric and the narrative and the psychological ways in which people are being swayed one way or the other in the next, I would say, two, three, four months. Your example of advertising is so potent for this
1: because it's the exact same mechanism, techniques, technology, data that are being used in the political sphere to influence how you relate to both political parties, what causes you to donate, what causes you to vote, what causes you to read this article, are the same techniques used to get you to buy a thing, to click an ad and buy a new product that's being advertised to you based on all this data. And it's these micromanipulations, to your point, the saturation of micromanipulations that we're facing from these systems is so overwhelming that we can't process it. We can't become aware of it. And again, in particular, because they're designed to influence that smaller part of the brain that is instantaneous, instinctual, quick action thinking, it never actually makes it to the part of the brain where we fully process it. And so it's happening to us all the time, and we don't notice it. And so you're bang on about that. And you brought up the president. He's trapped in the same kind of cycle that everyone else is in terms of what does it take to get elected with this new technology, with these new techniques. He just happens to be a master at using it. And whether that's broken clock is right twice a day, whether it's he's a mastermind and understands people at a level, understands psychology at a level that other politicians didn't, doesn't ultimately matter. It's a technique that worked. And it's the real tragedy of it is that because politics is a zero-sum game, because there are exactly 535 members of Congress and one president, it means that the person who's going to do this best for each of those seats is the one who happens to win. So we can't ask politicians not to do it. We can't wait for a hero to come save us.
0: Because the ones that don't do it, that don't manipulate us, will continue to lose. Yep. How have you got to this point? Because I think we've mapped out the problem. And I I would say the problem isn't necessarily just politics, right? The problem is how we're influenced and we don't even know that we're being influenced. And that's why I look at so many unintended consequences of just following this trail of thinking or following this group or following this narrative and what that takes away from a human being's ability to think through and rationalize and understand for themselves. So maybe walk us through, how did you get to this point, right? Was it a book? Was it an event that you went to? Was it an experience that you had in school? I mean, what kind of led you to view the world this way to the point where you're writing about it, wrote a book about it, you're blogging, you're podcasting about it? It's a great question. As much as I would like for it to be that I have some Socratic
1: wisdom and some ability to rise above it all that everyone else does not have, I super don't. I have in time started to see sort of where I'm being manipulated by this because I have my own emotional reactions, my own biases, my own desire for something to be true and revulsion of some other fact. But the thing that caused me to start to see that something was afoot was when I went to college. This was in 2005 in the city of Boston before that, grown up in a farm town in Pennsylvania. So I grew up in a very red part of the country where everyone around me were great people that worked hard, they cared about their families, they cared about the country, they cared about helping people, they volunteered, fire fought, they gave money to feed the homeless and the poor, wonderful people, and they hated the left, right? And they vilified them and said like, these people are monsters that hate America and they want to do all these bad things. And of course, as a child, I was very impressionable. I was like, that must be true. And then, of course, I went to Boston and I ran into a lot of people that were very smart and cared about the country and wanted to work hard and wanted to help people that thought totally differently about all these different policies and hated the right wing and said that they are monsters and want to destroy America and hate all these groups and all this stuff. And it was then, at first, just very defensive of conservatives where I grew up. But then I started to, when I started to kind of come to love the people that I had met in Boston. I realized, well, they're wonderful people too. So the Boston people are wrong about the farmers in Pennsylvania, and the farmers in Pennsylvania are definitely wrong about the people in Boston, but they hold these concepts of monstrosity so deeply. And I used to until I had met all these people in Boston. And I wondered, how the heck did that happen? Like, what drove that? Because disagreeing is one thing, and even disagreeing fiercely is, is one thing. But to really believe, and we have good data of this in the book, that people in each party really believe that other people in the other party. Have terrible intent, but they're out to do bad things. How did that happen? And that's the first part of research. Was this true? Yes. Okay. What must be going on? And so it was a three year project to try to dig into what
0: caused this divide of heart, much more so than the divide of policy and mind. So it's fascinating that you're saying this because last night I was watching something with my wife and it was an interaction between, it was four days after 9 11, and it was an interaction between a Muslim person and a Orthodox Jew. And I mean, talk about extremities. I mean, you look at left and right, Pennsylvania versus Massachusetts, but this extreme view led to the exact same conclusion. Both wanted the same outcome, yet they became so involved in their group. And the notion of group psychology just programs the same thoughts and the same feelings over and over and over and over where they're part of us. And we don't know why we're reacting the way that we are. We just react that way. And that's where I look at, if you're aware of that, then it allows you to really question the assumptions associated with what you believe, why you believe it. Not to say that what you believe or don't believe is true or false. It's taking ownership over what you think, what you believe. And I think that's the ability. We all have to realize we're human and we have been influenced as an American, as me, as a male. I grew up on the East Coast, but I live on the West Coast. We have all these influences and we form a perspective of the world. And that's how we wake up every single morning. And if we're not aware that the majority of our life is subconscious and we're just going to respond and react to things, when it comes down to these very critical votes or critical things that we're stating or that we're trying to, that we're perceiving, we're just going to buy into what all our past has programmed us to do.
1: The transformative moment for most people in my experience, including me, is the moment that you have enough, you're in a state of mind that through whatever preparation, perhaps reading a book, perhaps listening to this podcast, where you're curious, maybe this is happening. Because we know that it's happening with advertising. We know that it's happening about what we buy. And so we now have this thought, maybe this is happening in politics. And with that mindset finding and seeing you go on your Facebook feed, what's the stuff you're normally clicking like on, that you're normally sharing, that you're normally just reacting to with outrage. Like, ah, This must be true because it makes me mad and I'm going to tell the rest of the world and question that once and go look it up and go do some digging and go see, hmm, maybe this is designed to manipulate me. Understanding the mechanism of how it got to you in the first place is important. But when you see, oh my gosh, in this just one instance, I reacted in a way that Someone designed me to react in order to get me to do something for them. That's the transformative moment you realize, ah, crap, this is happening. And then you're prepared. You have the spine and the knowledge to begin to resist it and filter through it in the future.
0: So what are ways in which you are Because this is what I've seen in myself. It's a flaw that I've noticed recently where I have these biases, right? These cognitive biases to those that agree with me, as opposed to really going and checking my assumptions up against those that may have opposing views. And as I've done that, I think people have a fear associated with what another group or another philosophy or another perspective is. And I found that in myself as well. So, what are you doing to check the other side, to check your assumptions? And especially, I think your, both your book, your podcast, your blog is going to start firing up in the next few months. How are you looking at ways in which you can objectively analyze something, think about something, and talk about something so that listeners kind of get in the upper hand, right, in relation to taking your information and realizing that you're biased, but your bias comes from starting out being unbiased, if that makes sense.
1: Of course. Yeah. You're always going to have a perspective, a belief, a conviction, and that's good. And being able to challenge your own convictions is probably the single hardest thing on earth. It's a tall order. The beginning, of course, is when we start questioning vilifying the opposition outright. Because when we vilify the opposition, when we fall into these tribal politics that you talked about, it blocks us substantially from being able to consider that they may have an opinion that is valid ever, right? Because they're just bad people. Of course, what they think is bad, it's to hurt people. And so when we peel that away and we start to think, well, maybe these people ran into what they believe in a similar process by which I ran into what I believe, that's I think the first step to being able to start thinking about different people's opinions in terms of then being opinions in and of themselves, the other person's opinion may still be wrong, but that they are ideas and that they are not the reflections of evil. Not that there aren't evil people out there but within my like kind of a middle 80% of how the country thinks about stuff. So that's step one, is that we isolate the opinions from the people. And then I think the other path to being able to challenge my own biases is to ask, how did this other person, this person who disagrees with me so much about immigration, about the economy, about gender relations, something, how did they get there? You can think of this as a study of another person, and it can even just be a thought experiment. Right, you don't necessarily have to interview them. If you know someone, that's even more helpful. But once you've been able to go through that thought experiment and derive a reasonable narrative for how they got to where they got to, other than sitting down and thinking, "I want to hurt people," once you've got that firm, you can then turn it on yourself. Then you have the tools to ask, "How did I get to what I believe?" Right? What influenced me to get here? And again, once you similarly with the first layer of this, which is the anger layer, when we see the process. the mechanism by which we reached wherever we reached, we become less firmly attached to it. It becomes less something that's part of our identity and something that's more its own thing that just exists. And so I think the key is extracting the idea, extracting the thought from our sense of identity. And that opens our mind to be able to then go think critically. And then actually changing our minds, actually doing the study, that's the long work. It's not the emotionally hard work, but that's the long work.
0: So what have you seen as some of the success of your podcast, your book, where someone had a certain point of view, a way of looking at things, and they've realized how they've been influenced and swayed by this political narrative or that political narrative and kind of came to an understanding that's different? Because I look at most people consuming this information won't do anything with it, right? They'll listen to it. Oh, that sounds interesting. But because of how hardwired and programmed we are, they'll show up tomorrow, right? And respond and react to this the same way they've always done. And that's where it's like the notion of a pattern interrupt or a shift in thinking, right, allows us to go about life with maybe a different tweak to the way in which we make our assumptions. So going to the successes you've seen in people and how they've been able to understand things at a higher level, maybe talk through that. Yeah, good question. The way I like to say it most
1: about how we react
0: to hearing something like
1: this, I think when I'm talking about is something that generally at the level of nod and then walk away everyone would agree with, or almost everyone would agree with. They'd say, that's great. And boy, those other people who are super wrong, they need to hear this, right? And that's the first thought we're going to have is that other people need to hear this and they need to go fix themselves. They can be more like me, which is correct. And I think the hard work that has worked for people before, and it is hard work, and that's part of the problem is that it's not fun. Like It's fun to be right. It's fun to fight a war. We love fighting wars. We're very tribal people. We love having an enemy. And we don't have the communists anymore. We don't have the Soviet Union. So we're turning on ourselves. But I digress a bit. I think the best story that I see people change on repeatedly, I think it's just because it's the first chapter in the book. It's, it's, and I, we lead with it because it's the most intractably emotional topic I can think of, which is abortion. And people are like, ah, I don't even want to talk about it. But we really get people into it. And I think what most people, the success stories I've seen are that someone starts off saying, I am pro blank right? And anyone who is not pro-blank is bad. They either want to murder babies or they want to oppress women. They're sitting, they've got a war council about how to oppress women and how to murder babies. And that's their plan. This is based on like reader feedback, listener feedback. After reading that section on abortion, one of the things they realize is that the vast, vast, vast majority of Americans want abortion to be open and legal most of the time. And they want to have some restrictions, usually on timeline. And they sometimes disagree on that timeline. Should it be 20 weeks, 24 weeks, whatever. But the vast majority of Americans, whether they call themselves pro-choice or pro-life, would believe in that. And so when your protest rally with your tribe, and you're saying, end abortion, abortion evil, or you're saying, I don't even know the terminology, but essentially like free and open abortion always, right? When you say never and always, you're going to create a reaction. But when you actually sit back and you read that most people want it to be legal most of the time, the people who read it then go, wait a minute, that's me too. I also want it to be legal most of the time. So the breeders who get that, they go, like, wait a minute, we can all just sit down and say, we can just make it legal most of the time. And like, there are some tweaks to figure out and we'll probably fight about it. But most of us want to be legal most of the time. What are we even fighting about? And that's where people really start to change everything because we've taken the most like, terribly intractable emotional identity politics, life and death, feminism and patriarchy issue and realize like, oh yeah, as far as policy, we're not that far apart on it. It's just branding. It's stupid branding.
0: It's interesting. You have these two forces, right? The force of wanting to be right and the chemical reaction you get to being right and winning, right? We all know what that feels like. Oh, it's the best. And you have the other side of the spectrum, which is the fear of being wrong, yeah. right? Nobody wants to be wrong. And so you have these two forces that essentially are converging and creating these absolutes absolute mm-hmm. this, absolute that, because you want to avoid the feeling of being wrong and feel what it's like to be right. And I look at, again, those are very animalistic type of r- responses because I would say are, and, and we're all included in this because I react animalistically just as much as everybody else does, yeah. right? But it's being able to take these very critical things, these topics, right? that have to do with our lawmaking and the future, whether it's our future, our kids' future, the future of our society, right? These are very important issues and being able to approach them Right, as unbiased as possible, as unemotional, I would say, as, as possible is vital. Yet what's coming down the pipe right, is probably more artificial intelligence, more computer learning, very strategic influence that is going to get us to just buy into our tribe. And if we're on the fence, buy into some tribe. <laughs>
1: right. And your point about that buy-in actually represents the, I think, the biggest strategic challenge to this. And the third fear people have which is the fear of losing influence in stuff that they care about. Because I think what people rightly understand is that if I misalign, if I don't align with a tribe, I'm not able to create the collective power or I'm not able to replicate the collective power that the tribe has. So there's actually an incentive to suborn our own beliefs to a tribe because a tribe, when it's big enough and angry enough, can actually get something done. Whereas if we're sitting out in the middle going like, well, man, it's really complicated, right? It is real that the people sitting out saying, well, man, it's really complicated, they're not getting much done. The hardest part is if you ask an individual to let go of the tribe and go be independent, there's a good reason for them not to. And that's the structural thing that we need to change. So I do think that there's this individual perspective and the kind of peak way you can operate right now is to have a bit of emotional detachment where you understand kind of what's happening and you don't get caught up in the s and the propaganda as reality you still need to pick a tribe it's kind of tragic it's unfortunate you take the best thing that you can but the structural change that will allow people to actually let go of this is going to be a deeper structural change in how we vote in how we set up parties they're going to probably have to be some constitutional changes to allow people to have more than just two tribes to pick from So there's a little more dynamism and a little more fluidity to represent the real like nuance and difference that people have. Like if you think of the Republican Party, right? When Mitt Romney was running for president in 2012, he was very pro-immigration and he was very pro-free trade with other countries, right? And he was very anti-Russia, Obama gave him a hard time on all three of these. He said that his thinking about Russia was backwards. He said that too much free trade is bad for labor and too much immigration is bad for labor. And now the two parties have flipped. And so even within the Republican Party, you've got this pro-free trade, pro-immigration side, and an anti-free trade, anti-immigration side. And somehow they're in the same team. It boggles the mind that they can somehow get along. But because that tribal cohesion and strategic imperative is so powerful, they want to stick around. Whereas if we can structurally change something to actually let them get divorced and let them go have their own parties and advocate for their own stuff, it means you don't have to have this weird suborning of what you think to whatever dominates the party at a given time.
0: So what do you see coming down the line in that regard? I mean, do you, if I look at how much money and influence and resources behind these two dominant parties, what's going to cause them to create factions within themselves or something else to be as influential or start to kind of pierce that veil? Because you look at how people are fed up. The animosity that exists toward all politicians, whether it's left or right, is at probably the highest levels. I don't know, but maybe the highest levels ever. But yet, are they going to stay the same? Are they going to change? Like, what are you seeing?
1: Great question. So historically, we have had realignments occur where, I mean, if you think of Republicans, they used to be kind of a left-wing radical liberal party. Yep. And one of the major shifts that occurred was during the 1960s when the, essentially the Republicans moved south, the Democrats moved out of the south. And they realigned how they think about a lot of stuff. So we could have a realignment. I actually thought it was more like, I happen to think that in 2016, it would be a pretty lopsided victory for Hillary Clinton. And my preferences aside, it's just what I predicted, I was super wrong. It usually takes a serious trouncing of a party to trigger a realignment of that scale. But the thing that is coming down the pipe that you don't just have to wait for is Maine is actually, the state of Maine is experimenting with ranked choice voting. So they pass that in a referendum. They're implementing it in their congressional and presidential elections. The cool thing about ranked choice voting is let's say you want to vote Jill Stein, but you don't want Donald Trump to get elected. Strategically, right now, the right thing to do is to vote for Hillary Clinton in order to keep Jill Stein from or in order to keep Donald Trump from getting elected. So you don't vote for Jill Stein. So the Green Party doesn't get your support. Whereas in ranked choice voting, you could vote Jill Stein won. Hillary Clinton, two, maybe even Gary Johnson, number three, and then Donald Trump, number four. And ranked choice voting sorts out such that you voting Jill Stein one doesn't hurt Hillary Clinton's chance to beat Donald Trump in case Stein does not win. And so what that does is it changes all these incentives where you can actually prioritize someone other than your second least favorite choice, right? So let's say Hillary Clinton is your second least favorite choice, but Donald Trump is so much worse for you. You have to prioritize Hillary Clinton now. You can then prioritize in the future, in this ranked choice voting future, you could prioritize the Green Party if that's your thing. And now all of a sudden, that leads to a proliferation of parties of ideas that people can then go bounce around between and have a few more nuanced ideas besides this like seemingly black and white two
0: ways of looking at the world, which as we discussed, even within the Republican Party alone is not consistent. So is that right now, has that been adopted or is it still just kind of in that theoretical stage? It has been adopted. And then it went through a legal challenge. The legislature voted down and then
1: the Supreme Court got involved. It is back. So it is something that the system will, will push back on. And two dominant parties, the one thing that we'll probably agree on is that they don't want this to happen. The historical moment that needs to happen in order to drive a shift of that magnitude is something like the progressive era of the 1920s. So the 1920s, post gilded age was when enough people got sufficiently fed up with the system as a whole that they reformed a lot of stuff. They reformed how Senate works. They reformed how elections work. Women voted. I mean, all this crazy stuff, women voting, right? But it all came through from the bottom up. And so the path forward comes through a reform movement that works on the system as opposed to on specific policy.
0: Yeah, because nothing's going to change from the top down. It's all going to happen from the bottom up. Correct the incentives just aren't in
1: place for it to come from the top.
0: Well, Eric, this has been awesome. I'm glad we've started to, mm-hmm. because we haven't really talked politically on the show this, this past year. It's been more business and entrepreneurship and more theory. But I look at what's coming down the line next year, and I've watched some documentaries and just became aware of certain things. And from an individual standpoint, I think the saying that I've always heard is, I'm one person, what difference can I make, right? And I think that the individual has way more power than they used to have with their ability to communicate, with the ability to express themselves, with the ability to start conversation. I think we have way more influence than we think we have. Yeah. And I look at what's coming down the line and just starting to become aware and educated and figure out ways in which you can be influential is is uh, is vital because I just see the world is changing so rapidly on like a daily basis. Politics and law, I mean, having that type of structure is, I would say, a necessity for a civilized society. But it feels like change is brewing. I just, I don't know where. And that's why I think we need to talk about how listeners can follow you. How can they get the book? Like, what are ways they can keep up to speed with what you're seeing so that they can kind of circumvent some of the legwork they have to do on their end?
1: The one plug I'll make for, I think, why your audience should care about this as a whole, regardless of whether you buy my book, I should super don't care. My own startup, I go make my money doing tech things. There's no money in books. Yeah, there's no money in books. So buy my book or not, I super don't care. But (laughs) the reason you you, dear listener, should care about this is ultimately that you are an entrepreneur, you're a business owner, you're a stakeholder in this system. And completely selfishly, if the United States political system doesn't fix itself, there's going to be a lot of trouble for the economy frankly, right? There are a lot of reforms that need to happen to make it work. And there's a lot of want to play armchair economists too hard, but there are danger signs about how we've been managing the economy from the federal level that are due to the fact that we've spent our time being distracted about stuff such as immigration at the southern border and abortion perennially, and whether Donald Trump is a Nazi or not perennially. And those distractions mean that we're not actually as a populace advocating for the changes that we need for small business owners, for the like kind of bread and butter engine of the American economy. That's not happening. We are too distracted to do it. And of course, depending on how you feel about it, or depending on kind of how you think about it, like, does that in fact, leave the door open for certain special interests to pervert the economy to their interest against the interests of the whole? It's sleight of hand. Yep. Precisely. So I think even selfishly, even beyond just like we as entrepreneurs are major actors in this system and have a duty to have a public life, there's, I think, a private interest in this as well. So hopefully that resonates dear listeners pretty well. So the way you can find us, if you want to read a little bit more, reconsidermedia.com has links both to our podcast, our blog, and my book. I would recommend probably listening to some podcasts of choice first. It's going to be the easiest way to get into it. We're going to talk through a few issues, break apart some of the two-sided narrative about it, dive into some of the nuance and detail. And it's through that kind of repeated practice. A lot of it is on economics. What we don't want to do is tell you what to think. We try to avoid that as much as we can, but we do want to help challenge the narrative that you've been facing and arm you with the tools to be able to make your own mind up about what's important to you, what matters, what reality looks like.
0: So reconsidermedia.com. Come check out the podcast. It'll be great to have you. And we'll post all the links that we have on the show notes. So if you're driving, yeah, just go to the website, thewellstandard.com, and you'll have all that information there. Eric, this has been awesome. Thank you. Thank you again. Thanks for what you're doing. Uh, It's been a great, great conversation. And best of luck to you. Maybe we should link up again once the political environment starts to heat up.
1: That's actually a good idea. Yeah, it's off of my own show. We can do a little, I can riff a little bit more and we can talk about the election as is coming, which will be terrible and a lot of fun and terrifying all at the same time. So I would love to come back. Patrick, you are even more incisive and insightful about all this stuff than I even expected. So this has been a real pleasure. Thank
0: you. Okay. Well, Eric, thanks again. And hopefully we'll talk soon. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.